Before you, before you change the screen, I think I've never seen a better illustration of a song background than that one. If you're driving that road, you are praying, Lord, please don't let your love fail now. I just want to, because if your love fails, the brakes will probably fail as well. But I would like to go find that road. But isn't that a great reminder for us as we kick off our study of Nehemiah that God's great love never fails? We can tend to doubt. We can tend to question. In fact, God invites questions. He invites doubts. And if you doubt that, read Psalms. But his love never fails. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we sung earlier, his faithfulness is great. And it can handle whatever this world throws at him because he knows he is in control and our God has a plan. One of my favorite things about this book of Nehemiah that we're about to embark upon is that we get to see the culmination of God's plans at work. Israel didn't understand necessarily all that was going on and at the same time they had to come to grips with the fact that a lot of what was going on was their own stinking fault. But in that... God showed himself faithful time and time and time again. And so I am excited to start this series called Men at Work. Now, this isn't a gender thing. It's not just men that work. It was just a catchy title for me to get us in the idea of what Nehemiah is all about. And if you broke Nehemiah into two general sections, the first section is the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And in a moment, I'm going to walk you through some history. I'm going to have to put my glasses on and read because I can't remember all of the dates and which king went with which reign and things. But what we do know, or what I do know right off the bat and remember easily, is that it took a lot of work to fulfill the plans God had for man. God laid out the plan and it took men like Nehemiah and like Ezra and many others to carry them out. In fact, just to give an idea, I wore my work boots today to make sure we understand that sometimes we got to get down in the dirt and get our hands dirty. That's one of the great lessons of Nehemiah. When we introduce Nehemiah, often we want to do so with the leadership angle because Nehemiah, if, if you read all of the Bible, it's hard to find, with, outside of Jesus, it's hard to find many leaders greater than this guy Nehemiah. He did it right. But there are just as many examples, even in churchdom, of those that did it wrong. I don't know if you saw the paper this week, but this one just jumped out at me. It says, God's bankers are gone. And that's the headline on the front page. And I don't know if you followed, but the, the, the Roman Catholic Church has a new pope. And if you have followed things over the past while, you've discovered there's been some issues of financial mismanagement. Those that were in charge of leading the, the Bank of the Vatican uh, didn't do a very good job. And so the new pope comes in, and I think he strongly encouraged them to find employment elsewhere. And so they did. And we see this example, and as you read the article, you see time and again how uh, men and, and women decided that they knew better how to handle things than entrusting it to the Lord himself. And so, according to the article, God's bankers are gone. Now it's all the Lord's money anyway. So how about we leave it in his hands and we do the best we can to be good stewards of that which he's given to us. But we see often, and we hear about it in church life, that another leader has failed. 
that another pastor has made a bad choice, another missionary has done the wrong thing. We hear a lot about that. Well, I'd like this next two months to think about a leader that did it right. Now, was Nehemiah perfect? No, and we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. But Nehemiah was a man that his heart was oriented toward the Lord and was passionate about following exactly where he went. And maybe you're thinking, well, Mike, you're talking about leadership, and I'm not a leader. I just work for a company, and I have to submit to my boss. So what does any of this have to do with me? Well, here's some of the things you might not recognize that would be covered that make Nehemiah so timely yesterday and today. For instance, have any of you had to ask something of your boss that was kind of difficult or scary? You ever have to go to your boss and ask a hard question? Sometimes you do. Or sometimes they're in a bad mood and any question you ask them is difficult and scary. Some people are probably saying that of me. Have you ever had to deal with criticism? Really, only like one person has ever been criticized? If that's the case, maybe you should work harder. Because I I do feel that the the, the harder we work and the the more we seek the Lord, the more opposition will come because Satan doesn't like it when we follow him. Sometimes you have to make a decision, and it's difficult. Have any of you ever had to do that? Maybe you need to change jobs. Maybe you need to leave your comfort zone. Maybe you've got choice. Any of you face that? Is anyone awake? (laughs) Now, I need to be abundantly clear. I have prayed and, and, and begged the Lord for this message because I don't get to speak for you, to you for the rest of the month. This is all I got. My heart is on the line. And if you don't respond, I'm going to go away back to America thinking they don't love me. And by the way, it has nothing to do with me. But having said that, I will miss you greatly. And we are looking forward and thankful for the time to spend in the States. But respond. Come on. This is the, we have to be interactive with this message or it doesn't work. It's going to be very boring. Um, Many of you have likely had to consider stepping out in faith and saying, God, I trust you'll provide versus the security of fortune and fame or whatever that you already have in place. When if you take that step of faith, you have no idea what's on the other side of it. Anybody relate to that? Ah, we're getting somewhere. (laughs) Some of you have had to overcome adversity and disappointment like today or yesterday. Has that ever happened? Yeah, now, okay, see, these are very normal. Sometimes, maybe for you, life hasn't been fair. There's been injustice. People have treated you. They've gone back on their word. They've treated you poorly. That ever happened to anyone? All the time. That breaks my heart, but it's sad but true. Now, this one is your one chance to see if you're paying attention. Have you ever had to work one-handed? No, well, read Nehemiah and you'll figure out what I mean by that. But if you noticed, all of those questions that I just posed to you were very real issues Nehemiah had to deal with. I'm not going to cover them all. I'm going to invite a series of other speakers while I'm gone, and then I'll come back and we'll continue the series uh, as we go. But Nehemiah is such a practical, joy, and life-giving book because it's God showing how he uses ordinary men and women to do great things just by being obedient and faithful. 
And that's what I pray that we will learn, is that it's all about God. We've just gone through the first eight chapters of Deuteronomy where we know it's not about us, it's all about him. And we're going to pick up with that theme in Nehemiah. Let me open us in prayer as we jump in. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the legacy of a man like Nehemiah and what we can learn uh, from him. And so I ask that these words today would teach us, that they would not be my words, that you would hide me, and rather that you would speak mightily. Lord, we beg you for your Holy Spirit. We need more of you. Guide our hearts, teach our minds, and may we respond in such a way that we depend more fully on you each and every day. Well, to get an idea of what we're looking at when we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about the reality of the situation. This is one of my all-time favorite photographs because I think it's insane. There, there, there is a task that was before these men, and if you've seen, this is part of a whole series of pictures of what it was like in the 30s, to 1930s, to build a skyscraper in New York City, or if you'd like to call it Gotham, that's fine too. But as you see in the background, don't be confused, that's not the Empire State Building, that is the Chrysler Building. Uh, and this picture was taken of these guys just taking a lunch break, going about their work, and oh yeah, they're a good 60, 70 floors up. And they're just having a good old lunch. I love this picture because it says a couple of things to me that I think Nehemiah could relate to. Now, today we are blessed, and we are in the land of giant cranes that do a lot of heavy lifting, right? You know, if you look behind you, we have six sitting right over there, ruining our nice empty space that was so pretty, uh, and now it's going to be gone with the building. But we have cranes, we have lots of safety equipment. These guys are sitting there eating their lunchboxes on the side of a beam. They're not worried about safety. They are very comfortable in the position they're in. Today we call that foolishness. For them, they would call it confidence. They knew their job. They knew how to do their job well. And so they had no fear. They were quite comfortable with being competent with the skill set they had been given. I'm not over-spiritualizing this. I don't know if any of them are Christians or not. And I don't know their names, nor do I know if they're alive. I can't ask them. But what I see here is a picture of confidence that they're very comfortable where they are. Even if it meant taking giant, literally giant, the ground is way down here, if you can see that. Big risks to get something done that was monumentally epic. Remember, New York at this time was booming. Cities didn't look like this yet. This was, a, this was leading the charge of a whole new era of commercialization and lots of bad things and selfishness. But it also shows us this picture of people willing to step out and take a risk, maybe even a leap of faith, and go do the job that was before them. They were confident in achieving that. Well, how did Nehemiah end up in a spot like that? Nehemiah had to rebuild a wall. And oh yeah, he did it in 52 days. We can't get much done here in 52 days other than consulting. We, we do very well at consulting for a while, but we don't actually get a lot done. And then all of a sudden we just fly and we get everything done. Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like you to walk through a brief history of how we have gotten to this point in about uh, the mid-5th century B.C., 
And I got to put my glasses on because my notes are too small. But in five, and most of you have never seen me do this, and I apologize. It comes with maturity, let's say. Uh, The fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians came in 586. So way up here, and this is significant because when Jerusalem fell, we often think, okay, a city was sieged, somebody else took control. No, when Nebuchadnezzar took over a city, he didn't just say, hey, I'm in control, now you do what I want. He destroyed Jerusalem. Solomon's temple, gone. The wall that protected it, gone. Cities, houses burned to the ground. He left literally no trace. There was nothing left of anything of value. The city was destroyed. We have to understand that that was the starting point of everything that followed. When you look at Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Jeremiah, all of these books and all of this time period, which is hard to grasp in our Bibles because it's all kind of lumped together, well, that's when a lot of this is happening. Okay, and it started with the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, who's related and, and associated, not related to, but who's associated with Nebuchadnezzar? Does anybody remember? Daniel. So you start to see, okay, here's the picture of the first, the first round of exiles being taken away from the city. And you've got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're being pulled out and they're being used. The thing I want to bring up here is from the very beginning of God fulfilling prophecy of the exile, he began to put his people in official positions of leadership. Was Daniel a Babylonian? No, he was a Jew. God raised him up, a man of great integrity, as were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't eat the king's food. They did it their way according to God's will. And they were used mightily by him. Well, then you go on. And a little bit later, you've got the last ruler of Babylon, uh, who's referred to as Belshazzar. And he replaced Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, And you see this in Daniel 5 and 7. Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the actual king of Babylon. But when Babylon was overcome by Cyrus, this guy, Belshazzar, sorry, I got to keep looking at my list, was in charge. And it's interesting because Nebuchadnezzar was absent from the city when Cyrus took it over. And so it was him that's credited with losing the city. That's what you want to be famous for, right? Babylon is conquered because dad's away. Now, was it, whether that was really accurate or not, I don't know. So Babylon falls to Cyrus, the king of Persia, in 539 B.C. So we've gone uh, roughly 60 years. And this is interesting because Cyrus is taking over the world. He became an incredibly powerful ruler. But the interesting thing about Cyrus is one, he was mentioned long before by the prophets, and two, he was incredibly humane. As far as rulers that are conquering the world go, he was quite nice. It was he who in the first year of his reign issued the decree that allowed Jews to start returning to Jerusalem. Typically when you take a land over back then, you were to eliminate all the people. Pastor Dan talked about that a couple weeks ago. You eliminate opposition because what happens to opposition over time? They can grow in number and they can become a problem. Cyrus did the exact opposite. He gave the land back. He returned it to its, its people. 
And that's what we see that uh, the Jews returned in 538 under Zerubbabel and Joshua. And you can find that in Ezra chapters 1 through 6. The other cool thing about Cyrus was he allowed the foundations of the temple to be rebuilt. Now, it wasn't of grandeur like Solomon. I don't know if you've ever studied how amazing the temple that God allowed Solomon to build was. But I don't think our minds can fathom the beauty, the wealth, the greatness of this building God designed to honor him and to point people to him. This temple was significantly less. They were still a captive people, but they were allowed to lay the foundation of the temple. And it took 15 years for them to complete it, but a temple was restored in Jerusalem. And that was huge. In 522, Darius the Mede, Darius, depending on where you've learned his name, took over. And he was the first Persian king to try to conquer Greece. At the same time as Persia is growing and and kind of wavering in power, so too is Greece. And so you've got this dual world power thing going on. But he was defeated at the Battle of Marathon, if, if you're a history buff. And the temple was actually completed around his reign, somewhere in 520 to 515 B.C., now, here's your quiz. The guy that followed Darius the Mede was Xerxes, also known as a name I can't pronounce, Ahasuerus. Uh, Xerxes took the throne in 486. He was the second Persian king to invade Greece, but he too was defeated. But he did one other thing that's hugely significant for us in the church today. Anybody remember? Who was Xerxes and why do we know that name? I hear slight whispers. (laughs) Queen Esther. Xerxes took took a Jewish queen. Xerxes was the man that was used by God through his wife Esther to save God's people yet again. God again puts his people in his, part, in his place at his time and amazing things happen. If you wonder what I mean, read Esther. It'll take you about 20 minutes and it's a great little book. And it's one of my, one of my favorite sentences in that book. Who knows? But God may have you for such a time as this. And that was told to Esther as she was considering one of those hard questions I mentioned to you earlier. What if I take this risk and step out in faith? Who knows? God may have you there for such a time as this. So Xerxes married Esther, and then the reign followed of Artaxerxes, and that lasted for a while. And during that point in 458 B.C., Ezra was allowed in the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes to return to Jerusalem. Ezra was the one that began the political and the religious reform to turn the people back to God. So when we talk about Nehemiah, we cannot talk about Nehemiah without also considering Ezra. You don't have one or the other. These two men were used mightily by God in unexpectedly amazing ways. And you need to study both to get a really good picture of how God was at work. In the 20th year of Artaxerxes, way over here, we find that Nehemiah plans to rebuild the walls. And what do we know about Nehemiah? 
Well, we know that Nehemiah tells us at the end of chapter 1, I was cupbearer to the king. You've had your history lesson, and if you didn't keep up, that's okay. There will not be a quiz. But what I wanted to show you was in the life of Israel in its captivity, God continued to keep moving. How often do we feel like we can look at the world around us and see that it's crumbling and wonder what is going on? I believe we are getting ever closer to the return of Christ. And as you read through books like Revelation and Daniel, we see that the end times can be painful and tricky and, and just dark, to say the least. But God has a plan and he's at work. I know for a fact that Nehemiah had to place great faith in the Lord to keep stepping forward because he was cupbearer to the king. Now, to me and you, that sounds kind of lame. Basically, your job is to die first, okay? A great way to assassinate a world leader at the time then was to poison them. Easy to do. The security levels weren't the same. They didn't have scanners of all sorts and anthrax checks at every gate you went through. And so for them being a cupbearer, the guy's job was to take a sip and take a bite of everything that was put before the king first. That was their job. If they died, the king shouldn't eat it. Not a great job from that point of view. But that's not all. You see, the cupbearer had more access to the king than anybody in the kingdom. He had literally access to the king whenever there was a meal, whenever there was a feast, and whenever he was needed. So in all reality, what cupbearers were, they were the same as the chief baker. They were the same as those that would govern the wine cellars. They were highly respected men because their very job was to protect the king. And over time, they would become advisors. Now, often cupbearers were also known to be quite crafty. And they would be able to put in a good word for some people on the side, and then they'd take kickbacks. Think tour guides in Hong Kong today. You know how you have to go to duty-free shops all over Hong Kong if you've come for a tour and if they buy enough stuff, the tour guide gets money? None of you have heard of that? Come on, even I know that happens. Well, that's kind of what the cupbearer did. If he could get the king to sign off on something and it made somebody else money, he would get a commission, essentially. Nehemiah wasn't like that. But Nehemiah was a man that had a high position of great influence, really probably the only person that had more influence in the kingdom over the king than a guy like Nehemiah would have been the military general. That's it, because no one else would have more access to him. He could sit with the king. He was well compensated. He would live with great comfort. I mean, talk about a great scenario. Esther was a queen. But Nehemiah got it all and was part of a kingdom that was very secure. Everything looked great. And Nehemiah was comfortable. It's nice to be comfortable, isn't it? My children know we're flying tomorrow. And they were walking with me in Quintong earlier in the week and they saw an advertisement for a chair that leaned all the way back. And my oldest daughter is very concerned that she won't be able to sleep on the plane. And she looked and she said, oh, could we fly in a seat like that, Dad? And I said, honey, you need about five jobs. <laughs> and she said, okay, I'll start saving. 
we like to be comfortable. We like to be where things are secure, right? It's not a secret. We like to have all our ducks in a row, everything ordered, and know exactly how things are. Which brings us to the beginning of chapter 1. We know who Nehemiah is by the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, which tells us that Artaxerxes is king and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. Well, at the beginning, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, he was in the city of Susa. One of his brothers, Hanani, came from Judah with some other men. And Nehemiah, writing in the first person, says, I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. That was not news that was exciting to Nehemiah. He obviously cared deeply for his people. And shortly before, during the reign of Darius the Mede, they had made an attempt to rebuild the wall in the city once, and it had been unsuccessful. And so there's assumptions being made when you follow along, and when you compare this with Ezra and other books, it looks like they're referring to the fact that we tried. We did our best, and we failed. The wall couldn't be rebuilt. And so this isn't just referring all the way back to Nebuchadnezzar's destruction. This was saying that we keep trying and we keep failing and it's hopeless. There's an underlying message here of, it's not looking good, Nehemiah. This is, these are troubled times for all of us. And Nehemiah knew full well the task that was before anyone that would even listen to a conversation. He knew that it was a tall order to go into a dangerous land like Jerusalem to try to rebuild it. And Nehemiah would know the risk involved of going to the king. You're the cupbearer. If he's even considering some Herculean task, it's got to start with getting the permission of the king. And when you're the king's trusted advisor, that doesn't always go well. It can be interpreted all sorts of different ways. And when Nehemiah heard these words, you also get the very real feeling that from that moment forward, Nehemiah knew everything was different in his life. Nothing was going to be the same. Comfort was no longer the order of the day. How do I know this? Well, look what came next. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some minutes. I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven for some days. Nehemiah took this to heart. Now, if it's you and I and we hear bad news about our homeland, we're probably going to get some people together. We're probably going to try to consult. We're probably going to get a committee. And we're going to try to come up with an action plan of what could be done. Right? Tends to be how we do things. In the business world... In the church world, you know, we've got more committees than we know what to do with. In the school systems, you know, you have plenty of committees with random acrostics and whatnot. We love committees. Where does Nehemiah start? Well, Peter Drucker, if you ever heard of the One Minute Manager or any management book that's worth reading, often it is his name attached to it. And Peter Drucker says this. He says, effective executives do, first thing, do things first and they do one thing at a time. He calls that chapter first things first. He keeps, 
reminding you whenever you read his books that you got to keep the main thing the main thing. That's Swindoll that says it that way. Drucker says keep things first. Keep the first things first. Well, what are the first things? For Nehemiah, we see it right here. I sat down and wept. For days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He didn't go talking to other people. He didn't set up a task force committee or any other fancy name we have for it. He went to the Lord. And he said, help. We're in trouble. But the interesting thing is, James Montgomery Boyce, one of my favorite preachers of all time, said when you look at Nehemiah's prayers, it follows this verse. You see that if you come on Wednesday nights of prayer time, we often follow the Acts method of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And you know where we get that? Passages like this, because it seems to be how Nehemiah prayed. Watch. This is pretty amazing stuff. O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Who's that prayer all about? You, O oh God, you, the great and awesome God. Nehemiah is in a bad way, guys. He's struggling. He's hurting. He has been brought to tears. His people are in ruin. His land is desolate. He is brokenhearted and wounded. And what does he do first? He goes and he said, God of heaven, great and awesome are you. When we're in a bad way, when we're struggling, what do we usually do? Pardon my French, but God, this stinks. Life's not fair. Fix it. We don't tend to start with, God, you are so great. Thanks for putting me in this horrible position. <laughs> but that's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah got down on his knees and he was before the Lord. And he gave God the credit that was due to God. He adored our God. And he goes first to the greatness of God. Why is that important? Why do I think it's so important for us to start there? The Acts method follows a pattern that we have created in Scripture that it seems to be consistent. But when we think about the greatness of God, when we consider the sovereign control and power of a God that is so much bigger than we can think about or imagine or see, our problems seem to get a lot smaller. Our perspective seems to get a lot wider. Our hope increases because we realize that the God of the Psalms, that the God of Deuteronomy, that the God that Jesus introduces us to so well, our rock, our shield, our fortress, our stronghold, can handle anything that his, this world has thrown at us. That life, although it feels so circumstantial, is not so big that God isn't in control and has a plan. Why do we start with God being great when we come to him in prayer? Because he is great. <laughs> and when we think about that, it changes our very thought, our very way of looking at the world. He is so great that he can handle 
everything we bring to him. Let your ear be attentive, Lord. Please listen. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined. Inclined, in other words, in that old style English means he leaned down and he hears our prayers. I'm praying before you, God, because you are so great. Nehemiah doesn't know where else to go. I get the feeling. Who else can he go? He's the cupbearer to the king and the king has seemingly let this go on and doesn't seem to mind. Artaxerxes has other issues on his plate and frankly the Jews aren't at the top of his list. So he goes to the Lord in prayer. It reminds me of a famous quote from somebody else. Maybe you've heard it. I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of those about me seemed insufficient for the day says the man that was charged with freeing the slaves of America. The man that took upon himself a task no other politician in the country wanted anywhere near. Abraham Lincoln knew that task was before him and said, where else could I go but to the Lord? Now, I can't speak to how spiritual a leader Abraham Lincoln was, but he understood one thing, go to God. Advisors are great, good counsel is fine, but there is no greater counsel than the Lord, so go to him first. So Nehemiah continues, and this is interesting because this shows us a lot about the character of those that follow and love the Lord. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. You hear that? Nehemiah is praying out to God and he's resisting every leader's urge to blame everybody else and throw them under the bus. Was this mess they were currently in all Nehemiah's fault? No. Generations before they'd been making stupid decisions. They had disobeyed the Lord for a long time. Nehemiah could have easily said, my fathers, my grandfathers, it's their fault. Blame them, Lord. Why are you treating me bad? He doesn't. He confesses that I too, Lord, have sinned. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Jesus taught us a very similar thing to this. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah to play the blame game. And we leaders can do that very easily at times. Anybody can. Leaders, followers, and everybody in between. But Jesus says, be very cautious of pulling that speck out of your brother's eye. Because there's going to be a plank in yours. I'd like you to kind of get a mental picture of what that looks like. Have any of you ever had a piece of dust fly in your eye as you walk around the streets of Hong Kong? You know, with all the construction. It bugs you, right? It's, it's there and it kind of makes your eye red and you want to get it out, but you can't always find it. If somebody comes to help you, that's the scariest thing in the world to me. <laughs> Don't get near my eyes, okay? I'll figure it out. But when you see another finger, it's like, no, stop. Well, can you imagine if this pen is sticking in my eye? And you're going to walk around and everybody's going to offer to help you, right? But you're worried about helping somebody else with a tiny little piece of dust. And you can't even notice that you've got a pen in your eye. It's not about the pen. You've got a problem. And Nehemiah said, we are in this. We have sinned. And I myself, any of us have to be so cautious that we get to the point where we believe we are self-righteous. 
We affirm that God is great first. We ask him to search our hearts. If you want to know how it looks to really ask and repent before God, repent is a fancy way of saying, Lord, I've messed up and I'm going to turn and go the other way. Read Psalm 51. The man after God's own heart had murdered and, and committed adultery. And he was standing before the Lord guilty in his prayer, search me, O God. And he, re, he prays this wonderful prayer of confession that we can learn from. But Nehemiah, in humility, in an example, confesses his sin. He admits that, you know, I've disobeyed as well. We don't like to say we're wrong to anybody. But Nehemiah shows his people what it means to be a leader that can admit they're wrong and knows that God is sovereign and so holy that we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. He doesn't stop there, though, thankfully. He goes on and he reminds the Lord of all of his promises. That's a fancy way of saying, thanks God for fulfilling the promises because remember you're great like I already told you. Well now, remember the instructions, the law, Deuteronomy. Uh, you gave your servant Moses saying, doesn't this sound familiar? Isn't it interesting how often the themes of God's word continue over and over and over again? Well, how many times in our Deuteronomy series did we say, remember the instruction, remember the words of your servant Moses? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if you're exiled people, there is a prophetic element there, are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Nehemiah was putting his stake in the ground of hope saying, God, thank you that you are big enough to handle this and fulfill the promises I already know you've made. You can fix this. This is not the end. In times of trial and tribulation, Nehemiah went back to God's promises and said, thanks, God, you can do it. I don't think Nehemiah knew how all this was going to work out. He doesn't give any indication of that here. But he relies on the promises of the Lord. And it's a great way for us today to learn how to be thankful. Some of you may not feel like being thankful. Some of you have made a, maybe have had a really just lousy week. You're sick. Your employer's treated you badly. You've made mistakes that you don't want to admit. You don't know what to do. You're unsure of your situation. The list goes on, and life's just not fair. And I don't want to be thankful. Well, God's promises are new and fresh every day, and they're also timeless. He promises never to leave us nor forsake us. He promises us that his son, Jesus Christ, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And in him we find great life, life like no other. And Nehemiah was living a life that said, I'm getting ready, Lord. What are you going to do? I'm going to rest on your promises. Life is pretty lousy right now, but I'm going to trust in you. And then, then, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. God, I trust you enough 
to beg you, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants. He's saying, I'm bringing other people. Let's get involved. So me, here, hear me now. I'm leaving for three weeks. I would love to come back and have twice as many people attending prayer meeting on Wednesday night when we committedly gather together to pray for needs both near and far and to worship God together. And on Sunday mornings, I would love to see three times more people at 9.15 saying, we got to pray. Because Nehemiah was gathering people to pray to the Lord, begging them to give Nehemiah's success by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who's this man they're talking about? Well, in chapter 2, you'll find out all about Artaxerxes. I'm not going to steal next week's thunder. But Nehemiah knew, much like Esther knew, he had to go make a bold request before the Lord, but f- before the king. But first, he begged God to provide a way. So what do we do with that? Well, I think Nehemiah knew the exact same lesson Hudson Taylor is known to have said. If, if, if you've ever heard of Hudson Taylor, he's a famous missionary that started what was, used to be known as the China Inland Mission and is now known as Overseas Missionary Fellowship, OMF, one of the world's largest missionary sending organizations and also a personal hero of mine. And if you've read much about him, the guy just took great steps of faith saying, Lord, I want to tell people in China about Jesus. And I'm going to follow you because I know you're leading me there. And I know it's going to be of great risk and great scary realities, but I'm going to do it. And so he did. And this is what he says, is he sought the Lord and sought God to provide a way. He said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Let me say that again. It is possible to move men through prayer by God alone. Now, be very cautious of how you interpret that sentence because if it means you're praying that God will give you a new car and you go out in the street like the movie Bedtime Stories, Ferraris for free! That is not what Hudson Taylor was referring to. Hudson Taylor said that when your life is so aligned with the Lord, you are in communion with Him day and night. When that road is before you, He will make the way that you can follow Him and He will provide. No man is such an obstacle that God cannot overcome it. You want to know the great overarching theme of the book of Nehemiah? There is no obstacle that is too great for our Lord. That's why we turn to him first. If you don't understand that we start with the Lord and we go to him first, that obstacle that seems so big now becomes so small when it's in the hands of the Lord. We go to him first. What's interesting is AIC longs to emulate this very attitude of Nehemiah. We long to be a people that demonstrate an attitude like Nehemiah of going to the Lord in prayer. If you look on our website or look around anywhere, if you go through our membership class, our baptism classes, you hear about our core values. Our second core value after our first one, by the way, test members, what's our first core value? Look at the front. Oh, no, I didn't put it on this time in the bulletin, actually, did I? Glorifying God. Everything we do, we do for the glory of God. Second, we will demonstrate in every area of our lives prayerful dependence on him. In all things, great and small, we will look to God for 
Whose perspective? His perspective, his direction, his enabling at all times for all things. Great verse. Do not, actually, I'm going to back up. You can see Philippians 4, 6, and 7, but I want to give you the whole context as we finish up. I love how this fits together. Nehemiah knew it. Paul was living it out. A man that, by the way, as he wrote these words I'm about to read you, he was in prison. Again, not comfortable. Again, risk involved, thinking he's likely going to die, which he did end up dying later. Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember, he's in prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Just as Nehemiah demonstrated such great humility in saying, Lord, I've sinned. We've sinned together. He was gentle in saying, we're in this. It's not just everybody else. It's us. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He's right here. Do not be anxious about anything. Just out of curiosity, come on, be honest with me. How many of you have worried about something today? No? Cool. Those of you that haven't, well done. You are more spiritually mature than me. <laughs> and I admire that. But I must confess to you, and not just as a joke, but worry is a struggle for me. I sit in bed. People ask, why don't you sleep at night? Because I'm solving all the problems of the world in my head, and I can't turn it off. I am learning to get better at surrendering my anxiousness to the Lord. But this is a real struggle, people. And if it is for me, I'm pretty confident I'm not the only one. But look what Paul tells us. In every situation, by asking all your friends what they think and getting a million answers, no, by prayer and petition, going to the Lord. <laughs> How do you do it, though? Oh, yeah, with thanksgiving. God, thank you for putting me in this hole. Thank you for putting me in prison. Thank you for making me go risk my life to talk to the king. These are the examples we're given. So for us to go talk to our boss, none of us are facing death, I don't think, are we? I don't think if we go talk to our bosses, we're facing death today. Thank the Lord for that. They were. And Paul was facing imminent death and saying... With prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what happens when you do it? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. When we learn to depend on the Lord first and foremost and always, we get peace. Many of you are worried about many things. I'm worried about whether, I will not, whether I'll have enough flight, food on my flight. I'm worried whether my kids will shut up. I'm worried about a myriad of things along that line. But I'm also at great peace knowing God's got all that sorted. And those are little things. But there are many big things in this room I'm very aware of. And if we have learned from Nehemiah to go first for the Lord, to the Lord, we don't just seek other people first. We go to God and we say, Lord, I surrender. I'm yours. I'll listen. He'll guide you. And he might use other people along the way to give wise counsel. But you've got to go to him first. 
And who knows? God might have you there for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the story of Nehemiah, that the man was willing to step out in faith and go where you told him to go, where it was scary, where it was unsecure, but where it was your will. Lord, I don't know where you've got all of us to go in the days to come, but Lord, please make us a people that follow. Make us a people that hunger and thirst for you in everything we do and say. Lord, don't let us take a step without first going to you. We love you, Lord. In your name I pray.